welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Welcome to another episode of the Flourishing Education podcast. Today I'm talking to Michael Lawrence. So Michael is based in Australia. He's a writer and presenter of the 21st century education trends, a Finnish perspective. Michael, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for, for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm delighted to be speaking to, to you. Um, so, so for the listeners, I, I, I connected with, with Michael via LinkedIn um, and I became aware that Michael has a, a book um, and I was really interested in, in the book because he obviously talks about the Finnish perspective and, and I think Finland is a fantastic country that we should, personally, we should look up to in terms of education. So Michael, shall we start with that? Do you want to tell us a little bit? why you you wrote your book and why the Finnish perspective? Sure, uh, Fabienne. Uh, I was um, had a good friend in, in Finland. Uh, I'd written some other books on, on Australian music and he was a big fan of Australian music and he knew that I was a teacher as well. And he said, why don't you come over to Finland and I'll get you into schools. He worked in education there. And he said, I'll show you some of the schools. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like an interesting idea. Uh, so I went over there and um, went to some of the schools, met a lot of teachers, and also he was working at one of the a teacher education university. So I got to meet a lot of teacher ed- educators as well and uh, asked them a lot of questions, but they also asked me a lot of questions about Australian education and Australian schools. Um, and, you know, questions like, you know, I remember being asked, um, are all your students the same? The answer, of course, is no. And, and they said, well, why are you, why are you, you know, why do Australia, why do you, your schools standardise everything? Why, why do you teach them all the same things? And, of course, I didn't have an answer to that. And we have um, a national testing program in Australia uh, called NAPLAN. There's one in the UK, isn't there, a national testing program? What's it called yes. again? No. So, so we've got for the younger one in primary, it's called SAT. Yep. And then in, in secondary school is GCSEs. Okay, um, yep. And then A-levels, A-levels when they arrive in, in the last two years before they go to university. Okay. Well, this, this NAPLAN one is um, at grade threes, five, seven and nine. So your grade threes are, are only like eight years of age. Um, and anyway, I can remember um, Finnish, one Finnish teacher educator asking me, uh, about that NAPLAN test and when I said that, you know, they can be eight years old, she just looked at me like I was a child molester and said, why are Australian teachers letting that happen to eight-year-olds? And I had no answer to this either, basically. And um, so it was questions like that that led me to think, well, I need to find out, you know, do a bit of research here, thinking that there must surely be, be excellent reasons why Australian education does all these things 
uh, and maybe I just missed the, you know, missed the um, the information somewhere. The letter got lost in the mail or something, or the info didn't get to me. So um, I went back to Australia and started researching away, and um, quickly realised that there was um, a book in this. And once I started to realise that uh, Australian education didn't have good reasons for doing these kinds of things, and that the way the Finnish were doing it was clearly best practice. This is when I decided to, to do this book. And having some good connections in Finnish education meant I was able to have access to lots of excellent um, dissertations and uh, papers like papers like research papers and things like that from Finland as well as from the Australian end. So I read every book that there was. I'm looking at a, a pile of books half a metre high from here on education and Finnish education and everything like that. And I read all these dissertations and papers and things that spoke to people, interviewed people, essentially tried to find out, um, one, how Australian education had got to this place that it was in, because for 20 years, the, the NAPLAN test that I was talking about before, the national test, the results in those <coughs> over 20 years have gone backwards rather than forwards, as have our rankings in the PISA testing, the international tests, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and yet we've continued to, to run the NAPLAN tests every every year or two um, that they they do it. It's an, it is annual, actually. It, it, they've continued to run those and they've um, they cost, I believe, um, in the vicinity of tens of millions of dollars every year um, to run. It's hard to get the exact figures, of course. And when they do do a review on those NAPLAN tests, it's actually the company that, that produces the test that does the review on itself. And naturally, they uh, they seem to give themselves a reasonable report card. And when when there's anyone criticises it, they say, look, don't, don't criticise the messenger. You know, we're just the messenger. Um, but, you know, this, this sort of testing is just ridiculous because essentially, and this is, this is what Finnish people said to me too, Finnish educators. They said, why, aren't, why don't they trust Australian teachers enough to, to just go on their marks? Because teachers know, and you do when you're a teacher, you know which kids have got problems and so on. So they would do these NAPLAN tests um, and it would be a couple of months, three or four months before they got the results back. And of course, by then, especially, you know, students who are that young, they're in a, their education somewhere else within three or four, five months, you know, and um, all hundreds of millions of dollars, well, a hundred million dollars is getting spent to do these tests. Schools get the results back months later and they do nothing about it. Essentially, what what, is, what the message is, is that, they tell parents on, there's a website that the government's got and it tells you, it says, if your child is at a school that doesn't do well at NAPLAN, we recommend that you take them to another school that does. So it's as if they're trying to name and shame schools as if somehow the teachers or students in these schools uh, aren't really trying or something and somehow naming and shaming them will make them, you know, um, get their act together, so to speak, or lift their game. And of course, that it doesn't work. What happens then is that the, those schools that have gone really poorly in those NAPLAN tests, the best students leave, the ones whose parents are in a position to um, be able to take their kids to another school. So in other words, those parents have got the time and the money to be able to drive their kids to a school that's invariably some distance away. 
and the school itself is left with um, the students who don't do so well academically according to these tests and whose parents aren't in a good enough position to be able to move their kids to a better school. And, um, and then often that, that school might lose some funding because their numbers have dropped and they don't have as many students. So they're kind of compounding the problem. Um, and so this kind of, these, this is the, what led me to write this book was once, because once you start to get to the bottom of it, you just see this system that seems almost designed to create um, failure. It seems to be designed to create a bunch of exclusive kids um, and a bunch of kids who have missed out and bad luck. No one seems to care that they're missing out and getting no support whatsoever. Uh, and look, I know you're, you're in the UK there and it's, it's not unlike this. There's, there's a quote in my book, there's a quote about the UK's private school system as well. And Australia has more students in private schools than any country in the world does. And the government funding, the government gives more money to those private schools than it does to the government schools by quite a margin. So you, it, it's, really? for all it, it's true. It's, it's very true. And it's it's quite shocking. The government actually commissioned a report, well, this would be eight, or eight years ago or so, called the Gonski Report, because the guy who headed the review, and he spent a couple of years studying this issue. And his report, when it eventually came out, recommended that school funding should be the same across the country, regardless of whether you're, you know, you're at the most expensive private school or the, uh, the most basic of the government schools. And the government then went off and completely ignored its own um, review, made some changes, but then brought in a, um, a compensation fund so that any private school that had missed out on money because of the Con Gonski report got compensated for that with another fund. So you know what I mean? It just, so things like, this is why I ended up writing this book because the more I looked into it, the more or the less sense the Australian education system seemed to make. It seems to be designed to, to be a two-tier system. It's almost as if the government has decided that we should have a, an underclass of uneducated people who can um, work, uh, you know, hospitality and, and whatever jobs for low wages because they're, they're not very well educated and that's the way we want it. Whereas in Finland, a couple of decades ago, they decided that, that the best uh, resource they had was their own people and by making them as well educated as possible, they took the country from something of an economic backwater to a team that punches well above its weight now economically. But also the thing that amazes me for a Nordic country in particular is the last couple of years, they've got the happiest country in the world title a couple of years running. And you think, hang on, I, I always thought that if you lived in one of those countries up near the North Pole where it was dark sometimes of the year, you know, for 15 hours a day or something, that that led to depression and unhappiness. So for a country like Finland to get happiness, uh, happiest country two years in a row is just astonishing. But I think both of those things, those, that economic turnaround and that happiness thing is a result of their education system. They weren't achieving any of those 25 years ago um, uh, at all. So I think by creating a really good education system with equity at the basis of it, um, you know, if people feel like they're getting a fair deal and are cared for and, and the government, you know, gives a damn about them, 
that's one of the key things I think um, or key criteria to their personal happiness and that's why they've been getting that um, and that's what Finland does they really you know there's equity in education I remember being going to schools over there and I went to quite a lot of schools and Sometimes you'd ask someone at a school, you'd say, you know, how does this school compare to the others? Is this one a good school? And they'd look at you and just say, every school in Finland is a good school. And they'd look at you quizzically and say that too, as if, you know, what a strange question to ask. Weird. Why would you say that? I have to say, being French and growing up in France, it's changing now in France. And obviously we still have, we have the Grande École. So that's, that's you know, our equivalent to, to the, the good university, Russell Group universities in the UK. But you're, when you're young, so when you go to primary school and, and secondary school, in France, you're normally, the norm is your school, certainly it was for me, is your local school. So you, you, I didn't have a, there was no, no league table in terms of, you know, when I grew up, so I went to the school that was nearest to me that I could walk to. Um, and a lot of the children lived around where I lived so we could actually see each other outside of, of class. And I guess yeah. my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in Finland, it's, it's similar. It's sort of like your local school is the, the school you go to. Yep. Well, in Finland, it certainly is. Everyone goes to the, the nearest school and they, they don't understand why you wouldn't. But in Australia, very much um, not the case at all. Um, people, yeah, you go out, you know, when, when I went to school, um, you know, most people walk to school, but you go past any school now and, and there's just cars everywhere. And a lot of that is because those students are often coming from quite a few suburbs away to get to that school. And, and as I said to you, there's a government website that actually recommends people shop for schools in the same way that, you know, you might shop for insurance or, a, you know, something or a car or something, you know, they, um, we, and it just seems to be a very unhealthy system. This competition thing that the, the government seems, and look, I suppose it's, it's a, one of the, the main ideas behind conservative governments is, is that competition free market competition will look after everything. Um, but I'm not sure that you can apply it. Well, I'm sure that you can't apply that to education. Because you kind of think, well, yeah, the world's rough and tumble and it's competitive out there and so on. But you think, should we be applying that to five-year-olds and six-year-olds? You know, in other words, should they be at a school that's, that's nowhere near as good as the other schools because it's rough and tough out there? You know, that's just the way it is. I mean... Finland doesn't see it that way. They see that the years of childhood should not be full of competition and so on. And I guess it's like when you first start playing football or whatever, or netball or basketball, then you might not have played football, but you know what I mean. When children play sport, they frequently don't worry too much about the score when they're really young children. Uh, and that's the kind of attitude that Finland has to to education for younger children is let's not get you know overly fussed about the scoreboard it's not the most important thing going on here um having the children just enjoy the game or in this case the, the learning that's the most important thing much like we would you know with, with um with football as you know i'm sure your football was was big around france when you were growing up and did the girl what did, what did girls play when you're at school netball basketball 
Yeah, and yeah, I I, I played netball. Yeah. Um, but but also, you know, like things like hide and seek or things like that when you're little. Okay. I mean, there is there is no competition. There's that well no. there was no. no competition. And I agree with you because when I when I researched for my for, for my books, one of mm. the things that I really noticed is that students at university arrive at university, and I believe in the UK that, that comes from the, the system. And you know, now in the UK, one in two will go to a higher education institution when they finish their their sort of secondary school. Uh, and and really, that's what we're saying. We're saying the Holy Grail is going to university, preferably in you know to Oxford or Cambridge. But if you can't, then another really good university for the Russell Group yeah. universities. That's yeah. what we 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 drive them, and they arrive, and you know it's one in two, and and one in four get a first class degree so their classification is you know first class two one two two etc so one in four get a first and when you get them to sort of work together so i'm all about collaboration and cooperation that's those are my values that's what i, I love they look mm. at you and they they look at their peers and if you put them in groups of four well they think hey, hang on one in four gets the first if i work with these people they might get a first and I might not. And there's a real reluctance for that collaboration because we are yeah. driving, for me, I think I, I agree with you. I think that the un underlying tone is survival of the fittest and you've got to compete. You can't trust others. Yeah I, think, yeah, I disagree with those concepts. I, I Look, and I think, I think it's a, a fair point too. It's... if. If you take that, I, somewhere in the book there, I use the analogy about the government in Australia seems to try and use that NAPLAN testing as a, a competitive thing in the belief that schools will perform better if you, because they publicise those marks, how schools, not, not so much individual marks, they're not, but in the media, you can see how the school down, down the western end of your town compares to the school at the other end of your town. And so on, and the belief being that by naming and shaming these schools will somehow continue to or will perform better. But I always I use the analogy: if you think about sport, um, say in in football, again, sorry to keep going to that, but you never see in a football competition you never see the coach for one team go to the other team and help them out with a few tips about hey we've we've worked out a few secret things about the game that'll really help you win. It doesn't work like that. They keep it to themselves. And this is where Finland has changed by taking that competitive thing out of it. They're all in it together. They're all, they're all on the same team. They're all helping each other. They're all supporting each other. And uh, it's so much healthier than this competitive thing, which just doesn't work. You can't treat education like um, private businesses, I don't think. Um, it just doesn't doesn't work. But anyway, um, you know, it's happening. It's happening here, and it's it's happening in the UK and so on. But um, I just think it's a no win situation. And I I kind of think, well, as I said, it, it sounds like conspiracy theory, but um, I think there's something to be said for the belief that conservative governments do like to think that there's a an undereducated. Um, group of people out there who can work in, in low-paid jobs. You know, 
from what you described, so you know, you were saying that the the government recommends in Australia that you you check and if the school is not good enough, then you you take your child out of that school and find another school. That yeah. means that that for some there won't be any social mobility. So these people will stay in the school. They have no choice. You know, you you have to stay where you are because your parents can't take you to a different school or you can't. You know, so you're separating. You're giving to some people the opportunity to automatically do better than others because of the lack and, of funding. Essentially. Essentially, too, that that ability to do that to to become socially mobile will go to the people whose parents are well off enough to be able to take their kids to another school, not to the students who are academically better, because they may not necessarily be the same group. Um, you know, you could be the smartest girl in your grade, but if your mum and dad aren't aren't particularly well off. You know, if mum's got to work nights and, and dad's working a long day, um, you're not going to be able to get driven 10 miles down the road to a school every day and back again or whatever. You're going to be um, stuck in, in your school. And But, you know, that I can see that a conservative government might think, well, that's okay. We're helping out the, the wealthier people. Just like in Australia, this conservative government that's in at the moment has, has brought in tax cuts for the wealthier people despite the fact that we're told that we've got huge debts because of COVID, but, this, you know, we can still afford tax cuts to the wealthiest. And you just scratch your head and think, how does that work? You know, and this gets back to, and in Finland, a lot of people, when you talk about Finnish education, sometimes I've had people say, um, oh, you know, they're socialist or communist or whatever. And far from it, they fought wars against um, communist countries. You know, they, they find that extremely insulting. Their government, the previous government, the government that was around when most of the education reform was done, called itself a centre-right government. Um, but they just all understand that I think that, that a country's greatest resource is its people and its young people. And if you educate them, um, there's some stats I put in the book that talk about what America would how much how many tr more trillions of dollars the american economy would be worth if everyone was educated the way that finnish people are educated and it's just astonishing i can't i'm sorry i can't quote it off the top of my head those figures but they it was tr in many trillions of dollars per year um you know it helps your economy immensely if you can do that i mean you in australia what we we kind of end up with all this these these nat plan tests and standardized um, curriculum and stand, all these things get standardised because what happened with NAPLAN was that people's schools started teaching towards the content of the NAPLAN tests. Now, no, NAPLAN never said what we put in the tests is good for curriculum. They just, you know, put random things in there. They thought they'd be good to test. But suddenly those things have become the curriculum because schools want to teach towards it. Um, but anyway, people, schools that, that go badly on that, this curriculum gets standardised as well. So all the kids are doing the same thing. So school education in Australia has become, for many, it's a bit like a conveyor belt and you've got to fit on there and fit in with it all. And if you don't, bad luck. Whereas in Finland, the education is much more personalised and, and students feel that, that the school cares about them and that learning is about them. Whereas in Australia, it's like this... Um, 
conveyor belt, you know, and you better fit in or bad luck, you you won't get a chance, you won't get a good ATAR score and you won't be able to go to university or whatever. And many students just decide quite early on that school's not for them. And as soon as they can can get out, they do, or or worse, they stay there and literally just kill time there doing the absolute bare minimum or less uh, and wasting their lives and then end up, um, you know, in a low paid job or unemployed with a, with a government that's, that's trying to punish them then. And you just, you know, the cycle then continues as they end up having children and, and this thing goes on and on and on. Whereas Finland seems to have broken out of that cycle. And this is why I think that the people describe themselves as the happiest in the, on the planet, because they don't ever get that feeling that the government doesn't care about them. They don't ever get that feeling that the education system they went through um, wasn't about them, it was about someone else. Because there are plenty of, of students who go through that education system who, and it's the same in England too, I'm sure, you've got plenty of students who go through the system and um, they probably are quite happy with it as it, as it is, but they're, they're, going, they're more likely to be the students who um, have got well-off parents who, um, you know, they're used to seeing them reading all the time, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm talking about. If you come from that sort of household, um, a school system like that isn't going to be anywhere near a problem for you in the way that if, if you struggle a little bit, a school system that where everything's standardised and so on is going to quickly leave you feeling like you're. Uh, it's not about you. It's not the place for you, and you're going to decide to get out of there. And you and you know your your teenage rebellious sort of thing will step in. There was a one case I came across was a, a 16 year old girl who was an American and she'd gone to Finland as an exchange student, and it was in a, a book by um oh, it might have been Diane Ravitch I think or something, but it's it's anyway. Um, she said, though, that when she was in Finland, she said, Finnish teenagers are still rebellious like all teenagers, but she said ed education in their school wasn't one of the things that they rebelled against. She said that it somehow wasn't part of the equation, and I just thought that's, that's magic. If you can turn education, and that's, that was the thing that really captured my imagination as a teacher was because that's what, as an educator, that's what it's about for you is to try and have other people understand the magic that learning and that these, this whole thing, you know, what's magical about a book or history or whatever it is that, that your subject area is. When you see students get that, you know, that, that light bulb moment, as they call it, that's what it's about. And yet when you see schools that are inflexible and, and that are obsessed with, um, you know, giving out punishments because someone hasn't got their socks pulled up or something, um, you, you start to see, oh, they've, they've got it wrong here. The, the priorities are wrong. And basically the message they're giving these students is that it's not about them. Anyway, sorry, I'm waffling on here. Um, oh, I love it. I love it. It makes complete sense because, you know, you, you, so you were talking about this link to, to then the approach, right? So the, the, the issue with the, with the school. So for me, like, you know, a school that is, is doing less well for the, the those tests, those schools will also, as a result, attract less um, qualified teachers because a good teacher would be seeking a really good school, I would imagine, right? Definitely, so, yeah, definitely. 
and, definitely. And, then, and then the people in that school like this girl it doesn't mean that you're not clever um but you have to stay in this school if we use this this example of this girl in particular and it might be that actually your parents are like my parents. I'm, I'm first generation to go to university. So my parents yeah. didn't help me navigate going to university. I had to work it out for myself. Um, and that's much tougher than a lot of my friends who had parents who were already educated in the same way that my children are luckier because I can help them navigate the system because I'm in the system. I work in the system, so I understand it better. And that exactly. exactly. right? Exactly. Well, I've, you, you've read the, you've probably read the first chapter of my book, and I, I talk about that too. Um, my family wasn't particularly wealthy in any way. In matter of fact, because my father died when I was ten, um, mum, my mum had three young boys to raise so we, we certainly weren't going to get wealthy in a hurry either because she had to go out and work and so on um but i can recall and i talk about this in the book that i didn't know anybody apart from my school teachers i suppose who'd gone to university so i just assumed the universities were these places full of professors and i didn't know any professors and i thought well that's probably not certainly not any anything to do with me so i really kind of did not see that even even though i was doing quite okay at school, um, it, it, it wasn't a logical path for me to take because I didn't know anybody that had taken a path and gone to university. I, there wasn't a single person I knew that had gone to university in our social circles or in my street or block or group of friends or whatever. Um, so it didn't strike me as, as being an option. And it, it was only a because initially I wanted, I decided for some reason I decided I wanted to be a teacher and someone had said you can become a, a woodwork teacher by becoming a, a builder first and then you do another course after that and you become a, a woodwork teacher. And I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I could do that then. And um, I actually started an apprenticeship as a builder, which, which didn't work out after a few months because the guy I was working for didn't speak English and didn't, didn't really want me there as his apprentice. But um, I went back to school and, and finished my last year of school and got into uni properly then, got some proper, you know, advice and got in and actually found that I could do it. But I was, at that point too, I was quite obsessed with music. Um, and I, I write about this in the, in the book too. Music had become, particularly since the death of my father, music had become kind of a escape um, for me really. And... Um, one of my teachers at, at year 11, she was my year 11 English teacher, year 11, year 12 English teacher, knew that I was writing music and she was putting together a school newspaper and she said, Michael, why don't you write some music reviews? And I did. And for the first time in my life, the world that I lived in um, as a teenager and the world of school, which had you know, been an immense distances apart up until that point, actually came together. And that changed my life. And I've now written biographies on a couple of the biggest groups in Australia. Um, Midnight Oil, you probably know, they're yeah. huge in France and the UK. I wrote a biography on them. It's like 150,000 words, but it's the definitive book on them and another book on a group called Kyle Chisel. But that, that English teacher who got me to write those music reviews because she knew that that was my interest changed the course of my life because suddenly... 
the world that I lived, as I said, the two worlds I lived in came together and um, suddenly I found, yeah, I had a real gift for writing words and so on. But um, yeah, I just, yeah, I always think well, how many students never find that though, never have the world that they live in and the world of school come together like that. Uh, and therefore just think school's not for me and go off and probably do something else with their lives that, um, and haven't, haven't had that chance to find perhaps what their real passion might have been had school the way that it does in Finland. I remember one teacher said to me, in, at Finland, if the school hasn't helped you find your true passion and direction in life, then the school hasn't done its job properly. And I've never heard schools in Australia talk about that. I've got, got sons who finished school here and they um, didn't really know what they were, where they were going or whatever. And school had been so focused on them just getting grades and marks and so on and hadn't really cared about um, whether they were, in, you know, whether they enjoyed mathematics or whatever it was that they were studying, didn't seem to care about that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just it's an unusual system we're in. The Australian system at the moment in particular is totally focused on these marks and grades. And I can still remember a Finnish teacher educator saying to me, why, why are you guys in Australia so focused on, so obsessed with marks and grades? And I'd never really thought about it before. In, in the eyes of the Finnish educators, the marks and grades are just this little bit at the end of the whole process. It's not, the, the main thing is, is the learning and what you're getting from it and whether you're enjoying it and where it's leading you to and so on. And the marks are just this little bit on the end over there that's neither here nor there really. It's just how you went on a few tests and stuff. Whereas in Australia, those marks, everything, and they don't seem to care at all about the other stuff. And this is why I think the Finnish system works so well, because if, if you're enthusiastic about something, you'll go so much further than someone who's just doing a job. And that's why I often point to people, I'll, I'll grab it, I can see one here, actually. Um, there's, this is the, the Midnight Oil biography, and you can see it's, it's quite a substantial piece of work. But you don't do that because someone told you you had to do it. You do that because you're, you've got a passion for it. You really love it. You, you really yeah. enjoy it. And so that's, my, what, that's um, what Finnish education really wants to be about and tries to find in students. And once it's found that, this is why they're able to be two years ahead of most other countries by the time they do those PISA tests, even though they've started two years later, which to my reckoning is about a 30 to 40% increased efficiency in what they're doing. Now, most education systems are bending over backwards at the moment to try and get one or 2% extra efficiency. And Finland's doing that with less time, uh, less, less classroom hours, virtually no homework, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the world seems to still not practice. You just think if that's not best practice, what is? Sorry, you were going to say something. I was going to say, I wrote my books exactly in the same way. So I, I often sort of joke and say I fell into my research because I was so curious and I wanted to find out more and ended up writing. And I so get the, I so I love the story of, you know, your English teacher connecting what you're intrinsically motivated and what you loved, because what she did is she ignited that passion for words and learning in a way that, I, I feel the system. So, you know, I see it at university. It's about 
you know, throughout their system in the UK, young people are taught how, you know, it's not you know, how to learn or to develop a passion for learning and curiosity. It's what to learn. So they literally learn, like, I teach languages, so I teach French. And I, I was invited to look at GCSE papers to sort of link them to the common European framework to sort of like mm -hmm. level. So when you learn a language, there's, you know, A1 is beginners and then C1, C2 is sort of native speaker level. And then you've got all of these different levels mm, where yeah. you are. And they wanted in the UK to sort of gauge where their GCSE papers were against that common European framework and I looked yep. at some of the tasks and there's some exercises with the marking criteria I literally would have failed part of their paper and I'm a French native speaker so yep. I said the lady I don't mind telling you where you are on the common European framework but can we address the exam paper first because to me there's an issue if you're you you're testing these young people on a French language that I, as a native speaker, would never use, would never, you know, express, and and you know, I would get it wrong. It's not to me. Is is what what is the purpose? What are we doing? Um, and and I think you know that that's to me that's part of the issue is that you sort of when I hear young people who arrive at university wanting to read French for their degree, so you know they you would assume that. Is there, you know, is what they're really keen on. And they're so stressed because they can't speak French. It stresses them out. Yeah. <laughs> I was stressed out just being in Paris, not being able to speak French. I can't imagine the stress if you have to study it and you don't speak it. But that, that to me, that just makes no sense because the reason I chose languages, I studied languages at university because I love speaking English, I love speaking Spanish. I come alive when I speak a foreign language. Yeah. Well, look, you've, you've no idea. I, I, I've been an English teacher for a lot of years and write books and so on. But I, I really ad admire people like yourself and I've got friends in Finland and so on who grew up in Europe where there were all these different languages nearby and they were exposed to them all. I had friends... Uh, whose parents spoke, you know, because they were they were immigrants, they spoke a bit of other languages, but I wish I'd been able to been around a lot more of those languages because it would be wonderful to be bilingual. And I'm not because in Australia, hardly anyone is, you know, unless the only people I know who are bilingual in this country who were people who, as I said, they immigrated from, from Italy or somewhere and their parents are. But um, that that environment of being, you know, as someone who, who writes and is interested in language and so on, like yourself, I find that when I'm in Europe or somewhere, it's just fascinating, all the different languages and the words, and I'm, you know, forever looking at all the signs and, you know, just loving it, you know, taking it all in. But I wish I knew a lot more about it because I could take it into a much higher level. I'm taking it in, you know, if... Uh, on, on a French speaker's level, I'm probably at about the level of a five-year-old, nonetheless, you know, right down there. You know what I mean? But, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it is a wonderful thing when you've got that that language skill. I've digressed a little from where we where you no, probably wanted to go. That's really good because it just means that actually, again, you know, it's this it it fits in with the the model. I believe is because 
English as a as a language has become the lingua franca. So actually, you don't have to learn. You know, if you a lot of people will tell you, I don't have to learn to speak a foreign language because many people speak true, uh, true English. True. Um, and so, but 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 again, you know that that leads nicely into something I wanted to explore because I know that in Finland they don't just encourage subjects like what we call STEM. So science is not the, because that's one of the thing in the UK, STEM, so science and, you know, all yeah, of yeah. the maths, so, you know, they, they're more important than things that are seen as being the arts. So we, in the UK, we seem to undervalue subjects like the arts. So, you know, language languages um there's a huge decline in terms of you know people who do gcses and a levels possibly because yep. it's not that interesting in terms of the curriculum and i can understand you know, my question has always been as a teacher teaching french why don't we teach teenagers to discuss things like music with french teenagers or mm. you know know how to talk to a french girl or a french boy if you go on an exchange because you quite like them and you want to know who they are that i'm sure as an intrinsic motivator would really yeah. be better yes. teaching them yeah. like well i guess you know Yes, I know what you mean. I was I was in no danger of uh, of um, speaking to too many locals when I was over there. Um, they they yeah, most French people can speak a fair bit of English, but um, they don't like to if they don't have to. Do they basically, and the government doesn't encourage it either, do they? I noticed that. Yeah, well, um, no, because it's sort of, I think I think that's another subject altogether. But like the French are quite <laughs> of that. Yeah, we've got great. We've digressed again. We've digressed. But, but the, the, you know, so, so intrinsic motivation, you know, like the difference between yeah. extrinsic motivation and, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the Finns will, will meet the individual where they're at and will try and find a way to, to, to tap into their intrinsic motivate, motivation so they can then won't carry on developing that love of learning. Because what saddens me is, okay, we fell in the UK, loads of 19 year olds still finish, um, you know, at age 19 and they've got no qualifications. So we've obviously failed them in terms of no qualification, like you were describing in Australia. But also I believe we've, they've left with this hatred of learning, like, for them, learning equals school, school, and therefore I'm not going to go near a book. I'm not going to, you know, anything remotely linked to learning is too painful. And that's and you know, a bigger failure. I remember one, one class I attended there was um, a history class. And I think they were about about 15-year-olds, uh, which would be year nine or so here. But um, I remember I sat outside the room for about 10 or 15 minutes waiting for the teacher to come. And I assumed I was sitting outside an empty room, but the teacher came, but I wasn't. The room was full of students. And I thought, they didn't say, I did not hear a sound from that room um, the whole time I was there. There was no teacher in there and they were all just totally engrossed in what they were doing. So anyway, I said to the teacher, I said, so what, what part of history are they doing here? Which era? You know, he said, oh, everything. 
I said, what do you mean? And he explained and he said, well, we want to make sure that, that they, uh, this, this might be the last time many of them study history. So we want to make sure that they have a love, a lot, a lot, a lifelong love of it, basically, he said. And so he said, some of them are studying Roman history, whatever, I, you know, whatever they've worked out with them. But I just thought you would never hear that here in Australia. You would never hear them say that the main goal of this class is to make sure that they have a love of this subject. That was basically the main goal of that class. And he would say, I, I imagine, I didn't look, I didn't talk to him. He was taking the class while I was in there chatting to him. But um, I assumed that he had negotiated with each student, um, what are your interests? What are you interested in? You know, one of them might have said, look, I love uh, the, the food of the Roman era, you know, and I wanted to study their diet and their food. And, you know, and others might have said, look, I love knights. And, but essentially that was the goal was to make sure that they felt that history was, that they had an interest in history for the rest of their lives. And I just thought, you don't hear that. As a matter of fact, I, I'm sure that in Australia, we push so hard at that, at that VCE level, which is just before university, the last two years, that many, many of the students are, have had so many hours, long hours of studying mathematics or whatever, that they get through and it's been so hectic that many of them can't go near it again for the rest of their lives because we've actually turned it into the worst nightmare rather than something that, that they would uh, enjoy. Um, and this is where the, the Finns have got, you know, have got it right. Basically, they've they've turned it. They've, they've taken it from they've taken it from being a chore to being a joy somehow. And that's teenagers aren't very good with chores, you know. No. That, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and that that's essentially the that's where they've they've found the magic in there somehow. And as a as a teacher and educator, that's what I think most teachers. Uh, that's why they became teachers. I, you know, I think that's what most teachers were thinking when they said, I want to be a teacher. It was about that magic um, and wanting to somehow help young people find that magic. And Finland's doing that. And I've been there a couple of times. And once you've been immersed in it and seen it and seen that enthusiasm for it and said, so, one, one, I asked the teacher a few months back, because in Australia here, we've been doing the remote learning thing. I'm sure you've had it there as well. And I said, how has it been going over there? And her response to me, she said, oh, look, she said, students have been very careful to make sure that it doesn't affect their learning. And I just thought, wow, in Australia, what I'd seen was a huge number of students who'd been very careful to make sure that it did affect their learning. <laughs> you know, as usually as excuse, they'd be, oh, look, sorry, Fabrian, it's a bad line. It's a bad line. The, the, the Wi-Fi is not working too well, you know, and things like that, you know. Oh, I didn't, the line must have cut out when you said we had to do that. You know, you, you know, you know what I mean? They, they were using remote learning as an excuse to not do their learning, whereas the way she described it was the students were really determined to make sure that it didn't affect their learning. And you just think, wow, you know, the students have such ownership of it that even if things collapse, they'll still make sure that that's one of the first things they pick up again and, and get going again. And that's that's magic. That's that's the, you know the goal of education, isn't it? Yes. That, that they're doing it. Lifelong learning, love of learning. That's it. Exactly right. I'm doing this because I want to do it, not because. The big mean teacher told me basically that's that's what it's all about 
And um, yeah, that, that's what got me really enthusiastic about it was, you know, seeing people um, loving their learning, enjoying their learning and seeing teachers. Because in Australia, we've also got, there's a teacher shortage at the moment. And yet I could, I'd love to know, but there must be uh, half a million or so or more teachers out there who aren't teaching anymore too, who've walked away from it. Because when, when the whole curriculum is standardised and so on, the students not only get the impression that, that what they're receiving, that they're receiving an education rather than, than having an education or experiencing an education, but teachers feel like they're delivering it rather than being involved in it and creating it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, the, and, and the teachers think, well, I, you know, I don't want to be a part of, of helping students decide they hate school. You know, and, and, and that's what's, what sort of led me to being where I'm at at the moment was I realised I could either be part of the problem or part of the solution. And um, so that's where I am at the moment. I've got a, a meeting tomorrow with um, Parsi Salberg, the Finnish educator. Do you know well, him? I was going to mention him, so awesome, because obviously yeah. in Australia you've got Parsi Salberg, Salberg, haven't you? Yeah, and he's been here. He's been here for a couple of years at the University of Sydney, and I've seen lots of um, editorials and things that he's written in newspapers. And lots of educators here have a lot of respect for him and so on. Yet I've seen absolutely no change on the ground as a result of it, and it's very annoying. So I had contacted him a few times, and he got back to me, but but he'd sort of been distant as well because. He's also working in Finland and America and, you know, all sorts of things like that. But he got back to me the other day. Um, did you read the editorial that I, I put in the Education Review magazine? I, I think I posted yeah, it on. I did, I did. I read it. Yes. Yes. He read that. He read that and got and got back to me and said, look, sorry, I've, I've not been, um, you know, as, as accessible as, as uh, you know, as I could have been. But. He said, thank you for that edit that editorial. I really love that. And um, so we've got a meeting tomorrow, a uh, Zoom meeting, because he I'm in I'm down in I'm in near Ge in Geelong near Melbourne. He's in Sydney, but um we're sort of cities apart still, even though we're both in Australia. So I've got a Zoom meeting with him tomorrow. So that'll be interesting because this program that I I've running, this PD program, you is that one of your is that one of your questions are going? Anyway, um that's how what I've done is I've this friend of mine who works at the University of Applied Sciences in Tampere in the education um, educational sciences faculty it's called. We put together between the two of us a professional development program for Australian schools and teachers to familiarise them with and suggest to them ways that they can implement some of these Finnish ideas within the framework and context of Australian education. And at the start of it, it, it took a while, but we had that, we debuted the whole thing at the start of term two, but um, in the last few months, which was only about two months ago, but since then we've had um, quite some COVID outbreaks and things like that that have kind of, but I still think also that Australian schools are really reluctant to embrace things like that because our private schools here have been given heaps of money from the government. Uh, the school that I was working at, for instance, has got more than $30 million in building grants in the last eight years. Um, and 
they're getting all this money and all they're doing is teaching conservatively. So they figure, well, why would we change what we're doing? And then the government schools have been starved of funds and have got this whole, the government's basically using that plan marks and so on and the threat of cutting their funding even further if they don't, um, you know, keep their numbers looking good. So they're really scared that if they change anything, they might lose funding. So you've kind of got, you're kind of fighting against that. You're kind of saying, look, just relax and don't worry about the marks. And they're saying, no, we can't do that. We can't, you know, we, we're going to lose our funding, etc." And it's, it, they're terrified, I think, a lot of them to actually try something different. Whereas Finland somehow got past the, and I know the UK is the same. The marks and grades are everything, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's you yeah. are, you are, you are your 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 mark. You know, you are sure, and yeah. people. That's it. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, you are, and it's just the same here. And yet Finland somehow got past that, and that's that's really really good because, um, yeah, you you. Everything in the world shouldn't be a competition all the time, especially when you're dealing with young children. You know what I mean? It just shouldn't be a competition, should it? There's there's some things that should just be relaxed, you know. And when you're with people who are competitive all the time, it's exhausting. You know, you you, you want to have friends who are who are not like that, who you can just relax with, and you can say, "Look, I don't care that I'm not the that I haven't read every book of this or I haven't done every bit of that." You just want, you know what I mean? You want to just be with people who you can relax with. But this competitive thing that the government pushes with schools and stuff, no wonder kids aren't enjoying school anymore because they see it as a contest from the moment they get there. And, like, the school I was at last year, and they were ranking. They had every student in the school ranked from, you know, if we had 200 year sevens, they had every kid ranked from one to 200. And I just looked at it and I thought, if... If, you know, and my kid was amongst it, actually. He, I, I can remember the first time I saw these rankings was when he was in year eight, and he was, he was in the top three, but I was still terribly... I just thought if he wasn't... I just thought, this is... It's the distra- and when I'd try and say, why? No one could answer why, why we had the rankings. Oh, they'd say, oh, well, you know, because we want to have a few from different parts of the ranking in every class together. And, you know, they'd have little things like that. But you just think... I remember asking her, the English head that we had at the time saying to her, why does every class have to do exactly the same books and the same work on those books and the same assignments on those books, et cetera, et cetera? And she said, oh, so that, um, that it's all the numbers are fair, so when we give the awards out at the end of the year, it's fair. And I said, so wait a minute, so 100% of the kids have to do the same thing so that the 1% who get the awards said to be fairly you know fairly achieved those awards and that was that's what they do and you just think that's it that also doesn't make sense to me because if you've got high achievers you can you can encourage those high achievers if you call if you want to call them high achievers i hate those words anyway they're constructs but you know if you have somebody who is really interested in thriving then why not encourage them to actually go further because in effect, what you do with that system is you're holding them in a system, which means that they can't extend their learning or go further or go beyond because that's what they've got to do. And, and you know, 
and and Fabian, they would they would they would agree with you there, but they would still say everyone's still got to do the curriculum, and then you can do extension work and things like that. And you'd be and I and my view of that is just because you're a good student, I shouldn't punish you by giving you extra work. No, no. You know, that's what they were suggesting though was that because I also remember that the big one of the big things was differentiation. You know, which is essentially giving easier work to to students who are supposedly not as, as capable of doing it. But I, I then suggested, well, why, why aren't we allowed to to differentiate right through the levels? And, and they wouldn't have that because that starts to get too individualised and they don't want that. <coughs> and, and yet what the Finnish are doing really is they're differentiating everywhere. They're, and I always thought, well, if a little bit of differentiation is good, surely a lot of it is better. But you know, they, they no one no one wants to discuss these things in Australian education because they can't justify them. There isn't any research for it. There isn't any um, you know numbers to back it up or whatever. There isn't any neuroscience there to back it up. One of the things that I, I did in the book is that I took the things that Australia was doing and looked at the neuroscience on them, took the things that Finland was doing and looked at the neuroscience on it, the neuroscience that explains why the Australian things aren't working and the neuroscience that explains why the Finnish things are working. And um, But, yeah, it's, it's contentious stuff here because it's very hard to get someone to, to speak out if, um, it goes against the thing that they're the very thing that they're being paid to do. You know, there's a there's a there's a wonderful quote somewhere there about on um, that that I've I've paraphrased, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but Michael, isn't that because for me, isn't that because as a, it's a paradigm and it's something that we've so, so why are we doing it? Because we've always done it. So it's yeah. It's almost like the story of the of the the woman who cuts the ends of the meat because you know every time and then the the husband is like why do you cut the ends of the meat and it goes I don't know mum used to do it so it talks to the mum and she goes I don't know grandma used to do it and then when you talk to the grandma she goes it's because the pan was too small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, is yeah, that, exactly. that? Well, that, that goes on. That goes on here too. Um, it's like that. No one's quite sure why they're why they're doing it. You know, I remember someone saying that that someone trying to explain that the need for uniforms for school because Finland has no school uniforms. I never saw a school uniform anywhere. And someone here, I remember at a school I was at, said, "Oh, the the, the reason the reason why really being hard on uniforms is good is because then when your students rebel, they rebel against something like that rather than the work itself." And I tend to think, oh, that's a pretty flimsy argument. I tend to think that they tend to lose interest in school itself because that's the other thing in Finland too is that I can honestly say, uh, so listen, Fabian, everything we do here is about you and about your education. And you can't say to me, why are you concerned about what colour socks I'm wearing then or why, why are you telling me that I can't have a tie in my hair or something? I say, no. There's no evidence that socks leads to better learning or blue socks leads to better learning or whatever. Can you see, though, that if you're the student, if the teachers are talking to you like that, um, it takes away a lot of the things that you want to rebel against, doesn't it? We're only concerned about you and, and your learning. Don't worry about, you know, and that's what they've done in Finland. 
And as you know, in private schools like some of the ones in England, if you were to suggest they were to get rid of the school tie, they'd, they'd be off with your head, wouldn't it? And it's the same here. That's like this, that school tie is the whole thing to them. That there's, there's schools. I'm in Geelong where Geelong Grammar is that Prince Charles attended, you know. <laughs> that's that, that history of the school is everything to them. But somehow we somehow need to explain to them that um, the best universities in the world don't have kids walking around in, in uniforms and they're still very serious about their learning. They've still got a history that's intact. The whole, the whole world hasn't fallen apart, you know, and I think that's the, and I'm not trying, you know, nowhere do I advocate that they should get rid of uniforms, but I can see that if you really think about it, that's one of the crazy things that we do and that students must just think, students know that what, you know, what colour socks they're wearing or whatever has nothing to do whatsoever with their education. They're not stupid. As a matter of fact, the school I was at last year, which is a conservative Catholic school, they, I was talking the, <laughs> so I was talking to the assistant head there who tried to tell me that they were introducing uh, critical thinking and I just laughed and said, we can't do that here. You know, you don't want in a Catholic school to have people asking critical questions about the religion for starters, let alone saying, hang on, why, does, why are you concerned about what colour shoes I'm, or what colour socks I'm wearing? Or what? You know what, when you can't seriously bring in a critical thinking course when you've got so many ridiculous things going on in your school like that, and then say, oh, they've done critical, because they want to just tick the box that says critical thinking now, you see. They don't really want kids to be critically thinking at all. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, so tell me, the Finns and knowledge, because there's an obsession with this word knowledge in our schools, you know, in our schooling system in the UK. I don't know if it's the same with, with, uh, with Australia, but this notion that it's it's knowledge rich, you know, directly. So so Guy Claxton calls it Descartes. So a direct direct instruction, knowledge rich. You know, this sort of thing. I'm I'm the sage on the stage. I'm come here, empty vessels. I'm gonna fill you up with my knowledge because knowledge is everything. So what what was the thin position on knowledge? Well. One of the things that the, the Finnish are big on, and I think they do it different to here, is rather than knowing how many Jews died in World War One, or um, who won what battle and why, etc., in in the Second World War or whatever, they want to understand how millions of Germans were able to follow someone like Hitler, uh, how he was able to brainwash them to be complicit in the deaths of millions of Jews and things like that. So in other words, it, rather than, and our schools with their obsession with marks and grades, what gets tested is what is easy to test. So it's easy to test how many Jews died, um, which battle did this win, or which battle, what happened, where, how many people, all those things are easy to test. It's a lot harder to, to test the depth of knowledge to understand how Hitler was able to get millions of German people to support him and follow him in murdering all those people and trying to do the horrible things that he did. 
and stop those people, not only stop them from intervening, but get them, the majority of them to help him to do that stuff. That's, but in Australian schools, we tend to be obsessed with the, the numbers of things because you know that's what's going to be on the test. Because if you've written tests, that's, that's a really easy test to write, isn't it, if you write it that way? But if, and it's a really easy test to mark as well. As a matter of fact, you can get computers and you know things like that to mark it, or you can mark it really quickly. The expert to read the paper to decide if it is a good if it's a good exam paper or not, because it's the date and, and the number, and it's easy to correct. Yeah, and and look, you can look like you're knowledge rich if I can sit there and say, I oh, guess World War Two ended on June forty third in uh, when the Americans walked into to. Uh, Berlin and, you know, if, if I can pull off those sort of figures and stats and things, I look like I know what I'm talking about. But do I really understand how, um, you know, the world was almost destroyed by one person? And can I understand? I, I love there was a, a, a test, a, a question that I saw had been put on, because they do have examinations in the last years of uh, uh, Finnish education. Uh, before they go to university. So they do have examinations. And um, there was one question I saw, and it basically said, it said, using your knowledge of, of your studies of history and so on, um, explain how um, the start, what happened at the start of World War II, the likelihood of that happening in today's world. So in other words, it was taking deep understanding of, a, a huge historical event and applying that to a situation now. And that's a really complicated question. But what the Finns love to do, and this is why they do well on the PISA tests, is because the PISA tests also want you to apply knowledge. They don't want you to, there's no question about um, how many of this or how many of that or yes or no or who did this. There's nothing like that on the PISA tests at all. It's about how and why and explain, etc. lots of that kind of thing. And often the questions, there's a number of ways that students can approach the, an approach the answers. Australian kids fall into a heap on that because most of, not only are our, they used to tests that are about numbers and, and so on, easy answers, but they're also used to assignments where there's a rubric drawn up, and I'm sure you've got these in the UK too. And the rubric basically tells you how to do the assignment. And if you don't do what's on, if you don't do what's on the rubric, you can't get the marks and you fail. So there's one way to do it, and that's that. And yet the real world isn't like that at all, is it? No. You know, one answer at the back of the book, and then you get COVID, and he's like, oh. Yeah, exactly. But the real world, and I like I use the example. You know, I said if I've got, and I was at a seminar a year or two back where there was some. Um, People, there was a representative for one of the, an employment agency, and he spoke and he said that the feedback he's getting from a lot of employers is that the current generation of, of, uh, of job seekers aren't flexible enough. They're not, they're not able to um, change their behaviour and so on quickly enough because, and so for instance, if, if I'm working, if you've got a, a shop and I'm working for you and the delivery of you know, meat doesn't come for the burgers. I don't know how to keep the shop open and keep it running. But if I'm 
a good employee who's you know well trained and is adaptable, etc. I'm going to say, well, I got some chicken burgers from the butcher shop down the road, and I was able to still open the store, and it's all good. Rather than saying I froze because that wasn't on the rubric, so I didn't know what to do. And that's what happens to Australian kids in the PISA tests. We everything we do in Australia has a rubric to it, and we actually tell students look on the rubric and make sure you're doing what's on the rubric. And so kids aren't encouraged to think creatively. They aren't encouraged to, to look at other ways of, of solving problems and so on. And, of course, the real world doesn't have a rubric. It doesn't have an instruction book of how to do everything. So we're kind of creating robots that are used to following a list of instructions, but they're not able to think creatively or think for themselves. And um, I would say it's a very similar problem in the UK. It probably affects your PISA test results as well. Um, if, you've, if you're using rubrics and with the obsession with grades, I'd say you find exactly the same, same yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but that's yet, be, I'm a cynic, right? So I'm going to say that serves a purpose because if you if you're not encouraged to think critically about events like the Second World War and ask questions like, how was Hitler be able to do what he did and, you know, to get all the masses to look at nationalism and all of those things, then yep. what happens is you, you, don't, you don't think critically, so you don't ask questions. And if you don't ask questions, it serves a purpose because you can do whatever you want nobody's going to ask you questions why are you doing this and i don't like this and you know and it serves in terms of the, if the masses are not asking questions you mean the rubric serves a purpose for you saying well, well i'm what i'm thinking is overall when you finish school if you've not been taught how to ask questions and to think critically then you're not going to question what your government is doing, what your leaders are yeah. doing. You're just going to follow the instructions. <laughs> yeah, and definitely, so, yeah. And definitely. so that always serves a purpose as well, doesn't it? Definitely, yeah. It's it's a huge it's a huge problem, but it's it's one of um, yeah one of many problems. How, how are we going for time? I've got no idea. I can't yeah, see. So um, we've been going for quite a while, so I don't want to keep you too, too long. But I wanted to. To ask you one question before I let you go. Yep. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about what's not working in the schooling system and how, you know, you've used the, the, the Finnish system as an example of, you know, good practice. How do we get change? How do we implement change if our governments, and it sounds like in Australia, you know, the same is being pushed as in the UK, the exam and knowledge rich, all of those things. How do we change? If we can't change the system itself, you know, and the teachers are, are leaving, what, how do you view, like, do you think we can change? And if so, how? Well, I, I, I think while we've got conservative governments, it's tricky, but but I do think that you can still sell it to conservative governments by letting by reminding them one how much money a country like Finland has made by you know exploiting that that resource that its that its people are by educating them really well and and try and frame it in a way that appeals to to those politicians and I, I think too one of the strengths that Finland's got is that their teachers 
um, and the educa educators are empowered and have control over what they're doing. So the teacher union, for instance, has 95% membership. And the teacher union is also the professional body as well. So in, a, in Australia, we have, in the state I'm in, Victoria, we've got what's called the Institute of Teaching, which is the professional body. But as a teacher, half the time you're not sure whether they're on your side or not because they kind of, half the things they do seem to be deliberately designed to annoy you or make life difficult for you rather than to support you. And we've also got the unions as well. And you think, well, surely the two should be the one and they should be working together. And so the, the, the professional body of the union are all one and the teachers are all a member of that. So there's just one body that represents education. And when the government wants to do something, they just go straight to them and ask them. So it's really, really simple. You know what I mean? It's not, there isn't levels of unions and professional institutions and pro, the union for private schools and the union for government schools. And there isn't, you know, this huge pile of things that educators in Finland are, are all together, they're united, they're one, and they work together and they have real power. And if they don't agree to things, the government can't force it through and impose mm -hmm. it on them. Because the government knows that, that this body is powerful. It's one, you know, by being united, they are powerful. Um, and I think that that would help too. And I think too that um, once the schools can can come to understand that what Finland is doing is going to help them to do what they want to do. In other words, if you really are concerned about marks, if you do what Finland's doing, you'll get those marks. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you'll, you'll think, succeed anyway. So it's not like you're you're gonna fail if you follow that system. You'll still be able to get good marks and to 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 go on to go to university if that's what you want to do. I yeah. I mean, pe people like us are all you know egalitarian in our views and so on, but that's not going to convince politicians, especially conservative ones. They they'll, they'll laugh and say that's why we're not doing it, but. If you can convince them that this will get, you know, more marks for you and so on, and that this will mean less people on on welfare and less people unemployed, et cetera, et cetera, and more people, you know, all that, there's there's a whole lot of economic positives that Finland has got from, from doing what they've done with their education system. And rather than it being a drag on, on the economy or, or whatever, it's actually caused their economy to thrive and their people to thrive. And well-being um, as well. I mean, obviously, if you are well, you were saying they're the happiest. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly well, right. You're not going to be ill. So if you're not ill and you're not stressed out, you can contribute more to the economy and to your society, to your communities, yeah. local and, and global. And, and, you know, no, I haven't seen stats, but I'm sure there's less people getting stress-related conditions from cancers and all sorts of things as well because... You know, a friend of mine works at the university in Tampere, I was telling you about before. He's, we were working on, on this program for Australia and he said to me a few weeks back, he said, oh, he said, the university contacted me. They're worried about my workload. They think I'm trying to do too much and they want me to look after myself. And I just thought, I just thought, in Australia, I said, I said, you never, that's just hilarious. And it's probably the same over there. You're more likely to get them saying, hey, here's some extra stuff for you to do, you know, you know what I mean? But that's what they do in Finland. They uh, actually, I um, and I just thought, yeah, 
and he said, oh, he said, I assured them that I'm, I'm fine and that, you know, it, it's all good, he said, but they're really concerned that I'm trying, you know, that I'm adding, doing all these things, trying to work on too many different things at once and so on. And I just thought that's, that's a great country is where they actually give a damn about people and, okay. and things like that. Wow. And, you know, and I assume it would be the same in school too and for school teachers and so on. Um, and it's just not going to happen in schools here in Australia. Pe people aren't going to. There's a story in the book about a, a teacher who went from America to Finland. He married a Finnish teacher and he taught in Finland. And he said, um, he said he's, that's right, his, his wife was pregnant and they were expecting. And he said, um, oh, the principal kept telling him to leave school as soon as the bell went and go home and spend time with his wife and, you know, I think this is when the, they also had a young child at home. But he said the principal was telling him that all the time. Get out of here. You shouldn't be here. You know, go home and, and look after your family. You just wouldn't get that at an Australian school. You know, you might get it. You might get it. I don't know. You might you might get it occasionally somewhere, perhaps. I'm sure it's not unheard of. But, um, yeah. Hey, I'll go turn a light on. It's getting dark here. It's, it's getting dark. Well, it's been That's why I was asking you about the time. It's it's, it's been amazing. I think we've been speaking for about an hour and a half, Michael. So yeah, it's getting dark out there. I don't know if you can see outside the window. Yeah, there, it's getting darker for you. Obviously, in Australia, yeah. it's, it's it's late for you, isn't it? What is it? Quarter is it? Is it quarter to nine there now or something? Uh, twenty-five to nine. So that means it is five. Twenty-five to six here then. Mm, yes. Yeah, because it's winter. It's getting dark. It's dark here by you know five thirty six o'clock. It's been absolutely fabulous speaking with you, Michael. I could speak to no you for hours. Um, before we we I let you go, I always ask my guests to wrap up and you know sort of give me you know if there was one or two things you would want our listeners to take away from this conversation, what would it be? Oh, look, the the, the most important things if if students. And, and children can enjoy learning, then they'll continue learning and their education will continue for the rest of their lives. And, and that way, it's not all about, you know, it doesn't end when they, they finish school. And often the way that we run schools here is um, children can't, and students can't get away from their education fast enough. You know, we almost scare them out of it. And I saw that thing in Finland, somewhere in the book, there's a stat that said that um, in one particular year, something like 60-something percent of Finnish adults had completed um, an adult education course of some sort. I thought, wow, that's an extraordinary um, stat and also shows you just how incredibly important Finnish people see education. And that's why all their education is free over there too. I think that really, show, that really tells and sends out a message that the government saying we really care about education and about people being educated is making it all free because yeah. there isn't any, I don't think there's anything that education wise you have to pay for over there. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been a real pleasure meeting with you. No problems. There is a face, if people want to know more about Finnish education, there's a Facebook group called um, What Australian Education Can Learn from, from Finland, which, look, it's the same stuff for the UK, I think. It, it, yeah. uh, there's yeah. a, the two countries have a lot in common. Yeah, 
I'll put that link and I'll put connections to to your work and your book as well, so people can go and check that out as well. Sure. Have you seen the the website? Yeah. So I'll I'll yeah. put the link, the website, okay. your book, and then and that, if you send me that Facebook link, then I can also add it. Sure. I'll do that. All right. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much. And I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.